Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Coming up on Primetime Politics, a changing of the guard in Alberta. I'm pumped about the progress we've been we've made over three and a half years, and in fact, over the past three and a half months. With Premier Jason Kenney heading out, the United Conservative Party gets a new leader tonight. But who will it be, and should Ottawa be ready for a fight? Also. Every last Inuk across this country has a connection with suicide. More money for Inuit suicide prevention. How successful have these programs been? What more needs to be done to save more lives? The head of the Inuit Tapirit Kanatami, Natan Obed, is standing by. And... They have intimidated Iranian families right here on Canadian soil. Is it time for Canada to declare the Iranian Republican Guard a terrorist organization? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Jason Kenney will be ending another chapter in his political story tonight. The Alberta Premier will be leaving office once a new leader is chosen by the party he helped form, the United Conservative Party of Alberta. Now, it's not always been an easy ride for Premier Kenney, especially in the last two years, but take a listen to how he is reflecting on his time as Alberta's 18th Premier. I'm feeling great. I'm just doing my job. I'm trying to deliver on our commitments to Albertans uh, as long as I have this responsibility. So uh, I'm grateful, as, as I said yesterday, for, to have had the privilege of 25 years in public service. I'm grateful over the past uh, nearly four years to have had the best job uh, in Canada, the best job of my life, uh, to lead the best place in the best country on earth. And uh, so I am uh, I'm grateful uh, to have worked with a, with a fantastic team, and I am really grateful and happy to see this province backfiring on just about every cylinder. I didn't get into politics for the adulation. Um, <laughs> I, I got into public service to get things done. As for who will replace Kenny as UCP leader and Alberta Premier, there are seven people running for the province's top job. And while the former finance minister Travis Taves and former Wild Rose Party leader Brian Jean are very familiar names in Alberta, it is the former Wild Rose leader Danielle Smith who people are watching very closely as her promise to fight for Alberta and her Sovereignty Act have dominated the leadership race. Well, to give us a lay of the land ahead of tonight's results is political writer and commentator Graham Thompson. Graham, nice to see you once again. Thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. Listen, I feel like we need to begin with Danielle Smith because despite there being a field of seven candidates, she's the one uh, to have gotten the most attention. In fact, your most recent article that I saw said, look out Canada, here comes trouble. Talk to us about Danielle Smith and how her leadership bid has gone. Yeah, look, this is an amazing comeback. You go back 2014, she crossed the floor. She was head of the uh, Wild Rose Party. She and uh, nine others or eight others crossed the floor to the PCs, the Progressive Conservatives, and that was a huge mistake. Uh, all of those floor crossers never got elected, re-elected in the 2015 election campaign. Big mistake for her and for Jim Prentice. And she said at the time that she was unelectable. Well, a big comeback because she was on, she had a radio program, and that radio program, uh, phone-in show, actually allowed her to 
sort of uh, burnish her tainted image by really appealing to more conservative Albertans. And then during the pandemic, you got people angry at uh, the federal government, as usual, in Alberta, but also angry at pandemic restrictions. She was with them. She was supporting them. She was cheering on the truckers. She was um, also promoting things like ivermectin as a cure for for uh, COVID-19 at, at some points. But she actually played to this base, and it really helped her. This is the base that helped bring down Jason Kenney in that May 18th leadership review vote. This is the base that's helping propel her to a victory. This is not a general election. This is not 2.8 million voters uh, eligible to vote. This is only 124,000 UCP members, and half of them have joined just for this leadership vote. And many of them seem to have been joining to support Danielle Smith. She had a news mm -hmm. conference on Monday uh, acting as if she's already won. And this is quite amazing because uh, a free-for-all in terms of phone in, ask questions, this Zoom news conference, and she's acting as if she's already won. Other campaigns have gone dark. I've talked to a few. They think that uh, Smith is just too far ahead to, to catch tonight. So we're assuming, we'll see what happens, that she's going to win. Okay, um, that's... So this is, yeah, this is something we didn't expect a few months ago, but she is clearly the front runner. As you said, not expected, but that is uh, what people are talking about right now. Uh, I do want to get back to this idea of who her base is, though, because certainly the, the most uh, attention that has uh, been given to the race outside of Alberta has to do with Danielle Smith's uh, proposal of an Alberta Sovereignty Act. Uh, I'm wondering how that speaks to the base and how it essentially underlines what unites these individuals in supporting Danielle Smith. Yeah, a lot of anger at Ottawa. Now, Kenny really played this in 2019. He won the general election uh, in 2019 by appealing to people saying uh, he's going to take on Ottawa, fight the fight back strategy against Ottawa. People in Alberta, especially the conservative um, voters in rural Alberta, don't don't like Justin Trudeau in particular, but liberals in general. So she's really she's really tapped into that and up the ante by saying that she would bring in what's called the Alberta Sovereignty Act that she says would allow Alberta to ignore federal laws, federal uh, regulations, even court decisions that uh, she deems to be un-Albertan, that go against the interests of Albertans. There'll be a vote in the legislature, she says, but it's a way to try and ignore federal laws. Now, experts are saying this is unconstitutional. There's no way this is going to work. It'll be challenged in court. She's going to lose on this. It doesn't really matter. Either people um, want her to push this forward, who believe that she can do this, or they don't really care. They just want her to fight for Alberta and scream even louder. And she's been saying, look, the problem with um, Jason Kenney, he didn't fight hard enough. And I will fight harder, she said. And so experts saying this is a dead end, but this is something that's got a lot of support and has us all talking. When the campaign began, um, the question was, you know, was Travis Taves, the former finance minister, was a front runner, but she grabbed the lead by being outrageous and grabbing support and playing to that base. Again, this is not a general election. It's just about getting 40 or 50,000 people to, to support her and win the leadership tonight and then become the premier because as UCP leader, you become premier because the UCP is a governing party. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you mentioned Travis Taves. I want to talk about him as well because, of course, here you have Alberta's former finance minister uh, reportedly had the most support among MLAs. Has that now changed? Uh, how's his camp feeling going into tonight's results? Yeah, they're worried. that We seem to think, or we think, that he is in second place. The question is, how far behind her is he? Uh, listen, he began as a front runner. Uh, more support. People knew who he was. 
23 or so MLAs who are supporting him. Some of those MLAs now have deserted him and are now supporting Danielle Smith. And the thing is, in leadership races in Alberta, the person with the most MLA support usually doesn't win. It doesn't really matter. And a one person, one vote, um, where all the members can vote, they all have one vote. How big an MLA doesn't really make a big difference. So he was a front runner. It seems he's in second place. I've talked to people in, in his campaign who think that they're maybe just too far behind Daniel Smith. It's a preferential ballot. If he does not win on the first count, uh, then they start looking at people's second choice or third choices, perhaps. And Travis Taves, if he's close, maybe he can catch her. But the feeling is he's just too far behind. Mm -hmm. Now, that brings up the other candidates, among them Brian Jean, and then there are four others in addition to him. Uh, what are you looking out for there? It seems that what they're going to do is if, again, we're assuming Smith is going to win this, if he doesn't win on the first ballot, or say Travis Taves doesn't win on the first ballot, then you start counting the other candidates' ballots. And that's the role they will play. Um, they likely are not going to win this, so it's going to be a case of their votes, their, their supporters, those second, third, fourth choices will be the ones that determine the winner. So those other candidates in the race aren't really there to win the race. They're there, in a sense, to lend support to the actual winner. And that's going to be sort of how the, it will play out tonight as they announce the first ballot, second ballot, third ballot um, at 6 o'clock local time starting then. So we'll see just how quickly... Again, I'm out on a limb here in some ways how fast Smith is going to win this. Yeah, well, we'll see whether or not you're correct uh, in a short time from now. <laughs> but listen, right. I, I, let's let's also talk about whoever wins, because this has been a, a contentious leadership race. Some controversial comments were made. Uh, certainly people are coming up with past histories. Whoever wins, Daniel Smith otherwise, what type of challenge will they have in terms of trying to unite the United Conservative Party? Yeah, this is a real problem because it's been a very divisive leadership race. Yeah, at one point, you had four of the candidates holding a news conference to attack Daniel Smith's uh, Sovereignty Act. So it's a lot of division within the UCP. That's what actually helped bring down Jason Kenney. Don't forget, the UCP was brought together with the old Wild Rose Party and the Progressive Conservative Party back in 2017. And it's been sort of an uneasy relationship, an uneasy marriage since then and a lot of splits between both sides so whoever wins tonight is going to have to try and unite the party because of an election coming at the end of may that's the fixed election date may 29th is the next big goal for whoever wins tonight and this party travis taves for example has not committed to running again if danielle smith wins this race so it's a lot of um, pressure on danielle smith not just to unite the right if she wins that is just to tone down her rhetoric because uh, she's not well-liked among the general population, according to public opinion polls. So she has to then um, appeal to Albertans while she's trying to unite the Conservative Party. The problem for her, her base is very angry, so she can't water down her promises too much. She'll alienate them, and also she'll have a split within caucus. At the same time, she has to try and appeal to the majority of Albertans in the upcoming election. So she's a real, uh, I guess, interesting tightrope to walk to walk in the next uh, six to seven months. Mm -hmm. A tightrope for her and really anyone else who may win. We'll see if you're correct well, yeah, there, Graham. You and well, I will we'll speak. See, we'll see you tomorrow morning. <laughs> yeah, we'll see you tomorrow morning. And you and I will speak again tomorrow. But for now, Graham Thompson, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Well, Ottawa is watching the Alberta race very closely tonight, but many people in the nation's capital are also watching the fallout from a story first published by Global News. Now, they report videos from the Conservative leader's YouTube account included the tag 
of an online misogynistic and anti-feminist group. Those tags made it easier for members of this group to find Pierre Polyev's public postings. Take a listen to how the Prime Minister spoke about it in the House today. Mr. Speaker, a lot of ink was spilled and a lot of admiration for the effectiveness of uh, the leader of the opposition's campaign to become leader using social media, losing, using clever videos. We all marveled at his admiration for old wood. But what we didn't see, Mr. Speaker, was uh, his uh, choice to include deliberate reach out, reaches out to far-right organizations, including hateful anti-women organizations, to try and advance his own political gains. He has played too close to the line with extremists for too long. Now he's got caught. Will he admit it? Will he apologize? Will he take responsibility? The Honourable Leader of the Opposition. I condemned this organization, and I corrected the problem as soon as I, it became known to me, Mr. Speaker. But I condemn all forms of misogyny, including when the Prime Minister fired the very first female uh, Indigenous Attorney General. I condemn, I condemn when, he, when, he, when, he, when he mistreated minority young women in his own caucus who had to leave politics, and I condemn him for when he dressed up in racist costumes so many times he forgot them all. We condemn it always, Mr. Speaker. The tag has now been removed from Polyev's YouTube videos. He says he was not aware of them, and his office says they could not say who tagged the videos in the first place. Intergenerational trauma, overcrowded housing, food insecurity. Those are just some of the factors that have led to a high incidence of suicide among Canada's Inuit communities. And today, the federal government unveiled new funding in hopes of expanding programs to help save more lives. Today, I'm very excited to announce an additional $11 million to support the uh, ITK uh, uh, suicide prevention strategy. I know that President Obed is uh, leading difficult conversations on this, both on the side of protective factors and risk factors, understanding why someone wants to take their life and trying to address those risk factors, whether it be um, the social determinants of health, as we've talked about, but many other things, uh, and then understanding how we protect people and support people when they are in those dark moments so that there is a hand, a voice, someone on the other end that can help them through that dark moment. Our next guest was at today's announcement. He has lobbied government leaders for years on the matter of suicide prevention. Natan Obed is the president of the Inuit Tepedit Kanatami. Mr. Obed, thank you for joining us today. Uh, happy to be here, Michael. Now, the money announced today, uh, it will go towards strengthening the National Inuit Suicide Prevention Strategy. That's a program that was launched back in 2016. What exactly will these new funds be used for? Well, we're looking at about $11 million over two fiscal years, so um, $5.5 million per year, and then we have four Inuit land claim regions where these funds will flow to. So uh, we're not talking about a huge amount of funds, but a very helpful amount for ongoing work and things that we've already been working on, such as the creation of um, an Inuit-specific mental health first aid program and the, the administration and delivery of that program across Inuit Nunangat or wherever Inuit uh, might be able to take that course. 
we've partnered with Kids Help Phone to uh, provide Inuit-specific supports um, uh, that can be accessed from Inuit no matter where Inuit live. So funds perhaps will be uh, dedicated for, for, for that initiative. We've worked on child sexual abuse and forums that, that focus on ways in which to overcome uh, child sexual abuse and, um, and do more to protect children in communities. We also have uh, done um, events and uh, conferences that create resilience or protective factors for Inuit youth whether it be things like on the land training or specific events with um, other ports, parts of the community, perhaps that, that um, uh, youth uh, are not naturally as engaged in, especially with elders. Mm -hmm. And then we also have been doing work on um, social determinants of health, uh, poverty reduction, housing, uh, food security, and the links between those areas and uh, prevention of, of suicide. Mm -hmm. So a multi-pronged approach when it comes to this strategy. And I, I you know, I think it's worthwhile yeah. to, to, to re remind people that we know that conversations around suicide can be triggering. So throughout our conversation, there will be phone numbers that we're going to be putting up the screen uh, that people can access help through if they need to make a phone call. Uh, but as we continue the conversation, I'm wondering if you might give us a better idea of the scope of the problem in Inuit communities. I think most Canadians go in and out of the issue only really focusing when a tragedy happens, but when it comes to suicide, the challenge is ongoing in Inuit communities. Yes. Well, perhaps I'll start at the beginning. Uh, Inuit have not always had an elevated rate of suicide in relation to the Canadian population. It was only in the 1970s, and which cor um, corresponded with the first generation of children who really grew up with the full effects of colonization in Inuit Nunangat, whose parents had been relocated, whose parents had were the first generation going to residential school, who perhaps had their dogs slaughtered, who were coerced into communities. Uh, it was the, the first generation of, um, of children who grew up in that time period is where we saw an increase of, um, of suicide. and. Uh, that rate has increased uh, um, and then held steady uh, anywhere from around six times to 25 times the national average, depending upon the demographic we're looking at or the Inuit region where we might be collecting statistics. Uh, uh, all that has led to massive challenges um, in our communities for mental health supports and for suicide prevention efforts. Every one of us across Inuit Nunangat or wherever Inuit live are directly affected by suicide, whether our friends, or our loved ones, our immediate family. Um, we have experiences that affect us the rest of our lives. Um, this is just the deaths by suicide. We also have elevated rates of suicide ideation or thoughts of suicide to the point where um, in a jurisdiction like Nunavut, where about 50% of the Inuit population live, um, self-harm is, is the second um, most common reason for RCMP callout or the threat of self-harm. Mm -hmm. So we can see that this is uh, something that affects 
all of us and something that we are desperately looking for answers or uh, positive work in this area. Mm -hmm. uh, positive work. And as you pointed out, there's so many determinants around this. And, and among the things you listed were the social determinants of health, things like uh, investment in housing, education, food security, healthcare access. Today's $11 million that's one thing. It goes towards a suicide prevention strategy. But what about these other factors that create the stresses that lead to suicide ideation? How have your conversations been going with the federal government to address those issues? Yeah, uh, I have um, fortunate counterparts in the prime minister, also in Minister Haiju and Minister Miller, who are uh, the key um, uh, counterparts that we have when it comes to a federal government relationship and partnership for suicide prevention or related social issues. We have been working on trying to make transformative changes for things like infrastructure and housing, uh, tuberculosis uh, elimination. And we'll, we continue to make positive strides, but certainly not transformative strides yet. So still work. Eight hundred and yeah, like eight hundred and forty-five million in this year's budget for mm -hmm. uh, Inuit Nunat housing is a wonderful seven-year commitment. Uh, the The need is much greater, considering there's fifty-two percent overcrowding within Inuit Nunat communities. Mm -hmm. But we have made positive first steps, and uh, I, I, there is much more work to do. But I do commend the willingness of the federal government to partner with us and to listen to us when it comes to mental health and suicide prevention, even if uh, we could pick out any on, on any given day uh, a way in which the system is failing Inuit. Natan Obed, I really appreciate the time. Thank you for this. Uh, thank you. The issue of Iran was raised in the House of Commons again today, with protests around the world denouncing the brutality of Iran's regime, conservatives continue to press the Trudeau government to declare Iran's Republican Guard a terrorist organization. In the last 10 days alone, hundreds of people have been killed by government crackdowns in Iran. Here is Conservative Deputy Leader Melissa Lantzman. The Prime Minister was asked four times yesterday if he believed that the IRGC is a terrorist organization. They shot down a plane killing 55 Canadians. They have intimidated Iranian families right here on Canadian soil. They have killed thousands of their own people. They have raped and murdered women and girls, and they have terrorized the world. If the Prime Minister can't bring himself to call the IRGC terrorists, who does he think are the terrorists? The Honourable Parliamentary Secretary. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And uh, I think every member in this House stands to condemn the heinous actions of the, Ira the, the Iranian regime. We stand in solidarity with women, uh, particularly um, uh, Amina Masi and uh, all of the, the people who have been subjected to the tremendous terror of this regime. That is why, indeed, we have sponsored, uh, we, have, we have said that Iran is a state sponsor of terror, and we will continue to take every action necessary to ensure that uh, Iran's crimes go punished. For his thoughts on the protests and how Canada might respond, we're now joined by Farhad Razahi. He is with the Centre for International Policy Studies at the University of Ottawa. Thank you for having me. Now, before I begin to talk about the Canadian situation and this country vis-a-vis -vis Iran, I wanted to get your thoughts on the protests that we're seeing not only in Iran, but in other countries around the world. 
What is it about the death of Masa Amini that's inspired people to come out and condemn the regime? Well, Masa Amini was arrested by the Islamic Republic's chastity, chastity police for not wearing the mandatory hijab. And she died in custody because she was brutally beaten by the chastity police. But apart from her tragic death, which caused rage, uh, women are angry because of the regimes imposing discriminatory Sharia law on them, which basically considers women as second-class citizens. However, this is not the whole story. Iranians are unhappy with 43 years of corruption, kleptocracy, mismanagement, discrimination against the ethnic, religious, and gender minorities by the regime, and the regime's destructive foreign policy, which basically welcomed global sanctions and the U.S. sanctions, uh, policies such as uh, nuclear and ballistic missile programs, and also unreasonable enmity with the United States and Israel. That's what inspired the whole nation, and that's why people now are calling for changing the regime rather than changing a particular policy. Mm -hmm. Now, the government has responded, as you know, with crackdowns. They've been described by Human Rights Watch as uh, brutal with a cruel disregard for life, and lives have been lost in this crackdown. What impact do you think this action from the government will have on protesters? Uh, yes, unfortunately, the Iranian regime has responded brutally and so far, I think, killed approximately 100 girls and boys with, with an average range, uh, average age of uh, 15 year old, I think. This brutal repression against children basically makes the regime the number one child killer regime in the world. Now, uh, what the impact this will have Actually, the, the regime's use of violence and brutal force is just making the protests grow. The people's unity this time around, unlike in the past, is really unprecedented. Because for a long time, the Islamic Republic could usually drive a wedge between different ethnic, uh, different ethnicities, including Kurds, Arabs, Baluchis, Azeris, and also Shiites and Sunnis, but this time around, it's fake. What is clear for now is that Iran is in the process of transition. And in my opinion, the response of Iranian society to the death of Massa should permanently change the, the world's interaction with the Islamic Republic. You say that, and here at home, we've been hearing the Conservative Party. It has been calling uh, for the Prime Minister and the uh, Trudeau Liberals to list Iran's Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist organization. What do you make of that call? Um, well, actually, this call is long overdue because the Islamic Revolutionary Guards has been listed by other countries, including the United States, as a terror organization and has a long record of terrorism. It has a long record of supporting terrorism and destabilizing the Middle East through its proxies, including Hezbollah, Houthis, Iraqi Hashtashabi, and Yemeni uh, 
Yemeni Houthis and Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. This is basically not a, a figment of anyone's imagination. And uh, this is the record of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards in which uh, they have destabilized the entire Middle East and they also persecute uh, religious minorities in the region, including Christians, both in Iran and also in the Middle East through their proxies. This has uh, been documented that the Islamic Republic's proxies contributed to the plight of Christians in the, in the region. I actually wrote a report about this titled Invisible Jihad, and uh, there is documentation to prove this. So this is not just necessary, but long overdue. Mm -hmm. Dr. Fahad Razai, thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. And that's it for Primetime Politics tonight. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here, thanks for joining, and we'll see you again tomorrow. Thank you.